0: For more information on Ancient Dragon Zen Gate, please visit our website at www.ancientdragon.org. Our teachings are offered to the community through the generosity of our supporters. To make a donation online, please visit our website.
1: First of all, I want to say thank you to Tigon for inviting me to give the talk tonight and thank you to Ancient Dragon, uh, my home sangha. I'm very grateful for the practice that I've been introduced to here and to the folks I'm lucky enough to practice with. My talk is gonna be um, about confession. So I'm gonna start with a few confessions myself. I have this confession to make, kind of apropos of what we just did. I don't have any of our chants memorized. I've been meaning to do this for a long time now, but I just haven't gotten around to it. In any case, we aren't using our chant books currently. They're stored, I guess, wherever our storage space might be. And so sometimes when, for example, like we did tonight, we're chanting the metasuta, I'll chant aloud the parts that I can remember, and then for the parts that I can't remember, I'll kind of murmur along, or I'll try to anticipate the words by listening closely to what other people are saying. Sometimes I get those wrong. I have another confession to make. For one of our first services back in person, this is in the winter, I signed up to be Doan, which tonight was Jerry who, who rings the bells. For whatever reason, I was feeling very confident about being the Doan, but I had, you know, this would be the first time I had done it in a couple years. Um, I had done it a bunch at our place on Irving Park Road without any incident. So I relied on this past experience, I think, probably too much. For this first time back as the dawn, I, I sort of screwed up. I think I ended up basically cutting the service in half. Even then, though, I thought I wasn't necessarily the one responsible for that. I thought someone else maybe had messed up. Anyway, I was informed afterwards that, no, in fact, it was I was the one who had cut the service in half. I have another confession to make. I've been meaning to do these gattas. I, I think that's how you pronounce it before. I go to sleep at night and when I wake up. I thought this might help me. Gattas are sort of Buddhist prayers. The morning gata, the sleeping gatha goes like this. This evening as I sleep, I vow with all beings to still all things and to put an end to confusion. And the waking gatha goes like this. This morning as I wake I vow with all beings to see each thing as it is and not to forsake the world. I've been meaning to print these gathas out so I could have them by my bed. But I haven't printed them out yet. The document that has them has sat open on my computer probably for or sat open on my computer for probably 3 weeks or so. Recently I closed the document because I got tired of being reminded that I hadn't printed them out yet. I have another confession to make. Sometimes, despite, despite the advice of myriad Zen teachers, I do not sit right away in the morning. This is especially true right now. I'm on summer break from teaching. Sometimes I do not sit even a little bit later in the morning. Sometimes I wait until the afternoon to sit. Sometimes I wait until the evening, although if I have waited until the evening, then I confess there have been times where I don't sit at all. Further, I will confess that sometimes I do not necessarily look forward to sitting. Sometimes I wonder why I have put this object of sitting in front of myself when there are a million other things I could be doing, like watching Netflix. I have one other confession to make here at the beginning, it turns out when you start making confessions, it can take a long time. My confession is that sometimes I doubt. I doubt, for example, that what we're doing here is doing any good, or if it is doing any good, that it cannot do enough good to stand up to the very bad that is happening in the world currently the recent loss of reproductive rights for so many women, climate change, white supremacy. When I doubt, I doubt that by sitting and talking and sitting and talking some more and then doing a little walking and then sitting some more that we're accomplishing much of anything at all. I can't see it. I can't see the results of it. So I doubt, I confess. What is confession? Maybe an admission that you've done something you don't feel great about. An acknowledgement that you've done something shameful. I was raised Catholic, like many American Buddhists, apparently. And there is the sacrament in Catholicism of reconciliation. You confess your sins in private to a priest And he he gives you something to do to atone for it, like saying the rosary several times. If I remember correctly, we took the Sacrament of Reconciliation in second grade. The whole thing made me quite nervous as a kid. For weeks before my first reconciliation, I'm sitting there reflecting on all the bad things that I've done, or I I had done as a seven-year-old. And then... You go and sit with a priest and tell him this list of things that you 're done you 've done i 'll have to admit that the whole thing gave me a bit of the willies. There was a kind of power imbalance that i couldn 't countenance even as a kid i don 't really remember feeling much of anything after confessing these sins as a seven year old i didn 't feel lighter at all, and maybe that initial experience has made me reluctant to embrace what I can feel like is sometimes the heaviness of confession or reconciliation, even in the context of our Buddhist practice. As, you might, as we just did several minutes ago in our service, we chant the repentance verse here at Ancient Dragon. All my ancient twisted karma, from beginningless greed, hate, and delusion— Born through body, speech, and mind, I now fully avow. All of my ancient, twisted karma, as far as I know, karma comes from the Sanskrit karman, or karman, which means action, effect, as in cause and effect, and fate. In our contemporary world, I think we tend to think of karma as you got what's coming to you. So leaning more on the effect and fate of the Sanskrit. Leaning on the, you did this bad thing, so now a bad thing gets to happen to you. Karma as schadenfreude. We don't emphasize, maybe outside of this place, as much the action element of the definition. That karma is your actions, your acts what you do on a day-to-day basis, including the beneficial stuff, too. So karma might be both the action and the effect. Our repentance verse also notes the twisted nature of karma. I think we might tend to think about cause and effect as linear, a simple line between point A and point B, something easily traceable. You did this, and this is what happens because you did it. But the twisted of twisted karma underlines the difficulty, for me at least, of unwinding cause and effect. That it is, in fact, not so easily traceable. And perhaps that this becomes increasingly the case over time. And this has me thinking, Maybe this is why big systems like white supremacy are so difficult to untangle because they become much more tangled over time. In the case of white supremacy, it seems white people are only now beginning that work of unwinding, of denodding that twisted karma. This is really difficult work and requires vigilance, given that the knot becomes more twisted by the day. As a fourth grade teacher in a public school here in Chicago, I am, or at least I should be, constantly doing this, constantly looking at how I might express white supremacy in relation to my students. Granted, this is never on purpose, or with intention. And that is the part, or a part, or that is part of the difficulty of denoting a system like white supremacy, that the knot has become so embedded as to become almost impossible to see. Of course, I am a white person saying this. For others, for those oppressed by white supremacy, it is everywhere to see. But this is the work, the reflection, the tending of awareness that I must do as a public school teacher. Otherwise, and I see it and I have seen it, one causes suffering. Going along this line a little bit, I have another confession to make. I, ha- I am white and I live in a culture suffused and defined by white supremacy. I have benefited from it in innumerable ways throughout my life. I have lived my life knowing there was a kind of special safety net waiting beneath me, no matter what ill fortune. I was extremely aware of the safety net. I've never feared for my life around a police officer. The suburban neighborhood I grew up in was born specifically of white flight. The white people I grew up around lived so far from the city because they came to see the city as synonymous with blackness. In my schooling, I was never, ever removed from a classroom, no matter my misbehaviors. And in no school that I attended did I have to pass through metal detectors nor pass by a policeman roaming the hallway. And therefore, I did not find myself anywhere along the line of something called the school-to-prison pipeline. Let me be clear. I'm not making this confession out of a sense of guilt or to perform my guilt or to apologize until someone says everything's going to be okay. I don't feel the need to perform my guilt. Rather, this confession is a means of telling the truth of, in this case, making transparent inequity, injustice, of which I am a part, in which this kind of confession must be a step towards reconciliation and reparation. All my ancient twisted karma from beginningless greed, hate, and delusion, greed being an intense desire for something, hatred being an intense dislike or ill will, delusion being an idea of reality despite reality also likely intensely held so much of our behavior or our actions can be shuttled into any of these three categories beginningless greed hatred and delusion i was taught as a catholic there was a definite beginning to these kinds of things it was eve of course She plucked the apple, handed it to Adam. It was Adam too, but not as much. We were not fallen, and then we were fallen because of that act of greed. But our our repentance verse is telling us something else, that these feelings did not start anywhere particular, which means that they are, what, eternal, that they are natural, that our bodies and minds and speech maybe cannot help but produce encompass breed hatred and delusion honestly i'm not 100% sure what it means that these qualities have no beginnings does it let us off the hook a little bit i don't think that's the intent if anything, I think it means, or it is a means, of reminding that we all have these in common. There is no one who hasn't experienced feelings of greed, hatred, or delusion. They transcend time, and therefore being. None of us are angels, and none of us are immune to relationship. So none of us are immune to greed Hatred and delusion. And if anything, acknowledging the beginninglessness of these feelings helps us to confess because then we'll worry less about being expelled for our confession. I think this is a big problem for confession, actually. I think people are afraid to confess their wrongdoings in part because they're afraid that they will then be made an outsider from their community, that they will be expelled, shunted aside, shunned. This is a deep fear. I think our society, maybe in particular, but maybe not, has to do a lot of work to give people the space to say, I'm sorry, without them worrying that they will be disproportionately punished for doing so. That they will be forever exiled. That is one helpful effect, I think, of calling greed, hatred, and delusion beginningless. How can I judge you too harshly when I've experienced these feelings too? I have a confession to make. Do I experience hatred? Of course. There are people who I intermittently hate. I hate when people abuse power. I have feelings of hatred for people who take advantage of other people. These are not the only people I have hated, of course. Hatred arises occasionally, inexplicably. And in fact, zazen is a good means of noticing when these feelings come up. Zazen Gives me the space to not act on that hatred and perhaps to even see it transformed. That's the thing about greed, hatred, and delusion. Our practice can be the transformation of these feelings. Greed, given space, given awareness, can become generosity. Hatred, given awareness given maybe zazen, can become love. Delusion, given awareness, can be transformed to wisdom. We tend to underplay how important it is to really notice greed, hatred, and delusion, to acknowledge them. That's what confession is. And it's, again, a prerequisite of transformation, that noticing, that confession to oneself. I think this is the everyday awakening we're so often talking about. Maybe not the kind of enlightenment experience of your dreams, but extremely worthwhile nonetheless. Our greed, hatred, and delusion born through body, speech, and mind. The third line of our repentance verse Is there any difference between the three, body, speech, and mind? Not necessarily as is being proposed here. The verses don't go from beginningless greed, hatred, and delusion, born through body, which is the most important, speech, which is the second most important, and mind, which is the third most important. So we should pay attention to how greed, hatred, and delusion manifest for all three. Mind is really important. Not that you must erase or that you even can erase greed, hatred, and delusion from your mind. That's probably not possible. But to, again, acknowledge it. Body too, obviously. (laughs) I have another confession to make. I have practiced greed with my body by taking things that have not been given. In fact, I was thinking very closely about this recently upon Asian's recent Dharma talk on the second precept, which is don't take what is not given. I realized at one point in my life that I had done a lot of this. I was surprised. For a long time, I had framed this taking in a particular way as a sort of righteous taking. And now all of a sudden, I was looking at it in its true form, and I felt a kind of awakening towards it. Regarding speech, I have another confession to make. I have said hateful things. I have talked shit, to use a colloquialism. This is so common as to be almost unnotable. But our precepts remind us that we shouldn't do this. The sixth precept is a vow not to slander. Maybe you have experienced this, but talking shit about people is a kind of magnetic field. You can so easily get caught up in it. Maybe you are the person talking shit, and then other people talk shit. Or maybe someone else starts to talk, and this gives you permission to talk shit. In any case, it starts to happen, and it's like you can't help yourself, although you can help yourself. You can stop, even if it's really hard to do. So body, speech, and mind. I feel gratitude towards our repentance verse for reminding us that greed, hatred, and delusion can be expressed through all three. Finally, the last line of our repentance verse, just the four words I now fully avow. With avow meaning to confess, to assert, to acknowledge. I often think of it as to own or to own up. I own what I've done. A synonym for a vow too tellingly is to insist. I insist above any objection, above my own resistance, that I have done this. There is an assertiveness to this connotation of a vow that I appreciate. Perhaps it would be better to use any of these words, for me at least, Rather than confess, confession for me has an unnecessarily heavy connotation. In any case, we know it is difficult to own up. It is difficult to insist upon we've done what we've done to hurt people, because obviously it is acknowledging the hurt we've done, the suffering we caused, and we know we shouldn't cause suffering. It's uncomfortable. Perhaps it runs up against how we think of ourselves, our idea of who we are. We want to think of ourselves as good people. But then all of a sudden we are met with the hurt we've done. We want to then escape the discomfort of this reality. And sometimes, and I've done this, we use confession as a means to get out of that discomfort as quickly as possible. I think it's important that we not do this. One thing, one important thing I've learned folks do in AA is to make amends for past hurts. And one thing they suggest when making amends is to continually ask, do I have this right? Is this what I've done? Is there anything I'm missing? This is helpful, I think, to prevent rushing through the process. It might take a long time to get things right again. Now that we've dug into our repentance verse as a way of speaking about confessing, I'd like to talk briefly just about the function of confession. I've been reading Stephen Hines' book, Dogen, Japan's Original Zen Teacher, And he writes that Dogen was interested in, quote, the power of repentance to mitigate the effects of retribution. We see the effects of retribution most clearly, maybe, with acts of violence. Without repentance, one act of killing can be followed by another, and so forth and so on. The logic of retribution is circular and therefore utterly threatens the stability of the community or any community this happens i think at levels both macro and micro it is absurd to imagine maybe (laughs) but envision if russia after invading ukraine had become enlightened well and I hesitate to say Russia because that's so generalizing. Putin, maybe, is better to say there. After invading the Ukraine, it had become enlightened to the wrongness of his invasion, or the invasion, to the greed, hatred and delusion driving the attack. And not only did not only were Russian forces pulled out upon this enlightenment from the Ukraine, but also a confession was made around the needless aggression. Imagine if this was done publicly, avowing wrongs. This would be an obstacle, I think, to retribution. There would still be a need for justice, because I don't think confession equals justice necessarily. There would be a need for justice in the form of reparation. Fix the things that have been hurt, bombed. Somehow, make an effort to make up for the people killed, if that's possible. Or, at a more micro level, think of a family situation, where two siblings stop talking to each other because a slight one has done to the other. We know through experience that this kind of silence, that silence is sometimes made as punishment in this kind of case, and that the silence can go on for years. The silence is retribution. What is needed in a situation like that, it is, is an acknowledgement of the wrong. But again, it can take a long time to get there. But it is necessary to break that si- cycle, in this case, of silence. Here in the United States, we need to desperately insist upon the wrongs our country has done against Black Americans and Indigenous peoples. The United States needs to confess to the sins of slavery and settler colonialism. These sins need to be made transparent. These sins are very difficult to confess. Few nation-states have done anything like this voluntarily. Confessing these kinds of sins would not make the United States a weaker country, in my opinion, but a stronger one. It is almost impossible to imagine this happening. But I think we do need to imagine these kinds of acts as a precursor to somehow making them real. Again, this kind of avowal would not end the process of reparation. There would be many steps beyond it, but it would be a crucial and necessary step nonetheless. According to Stephen Hine, Dogen discussed how monks would take and retake the precepts, quote, as needed in relation to crimes committed or sins confessed. Dogen, using stronger language than Maybe I would use crimes and sins. I don't know that we're used to hearing these words in our context. The practice of taking the precepts is beginningless, along with the practices of committing and confessing. One should not kill. One should not take what is not given. One should not misuse sexuality. One should refrain from false speech. One should refrain from intoxicants, one should not slander, pray self at the expense of others, be avaricious, harbor ill will, and disparage the three treasures. These are our precepts. Dogen also recommended, as with all things, that we sit, oh, <laughs> that when we sin, we sit zazen. As well, Dogen says, quote, The meaning of reciting the precepts day and night and observing them single-mindedly is nothing other than the practice of just sitting and following the activities of ancient masters. When we sit in Zazen, is there any precept not maintained or any virtue left unrealized? We maintain not killing When we sit Zazen, we maintain not speaking ill of others. We maintain not taking what is not given. Sitting Zazen closes the circles of revenge and retribution. Denudes an atmosphere of talking shit. Again, let us imagine the possibilities An act of harm is done. A confession is made, helpfully, and then an invitation. Why don't we sit zazen together? Spend a little while in communion, observing our breath. What would not be shared in this kind of moment? What is not observed? What kind of awakening and wisdom is outside the circle of zazen? I'd like to make one final connection here. And again, it relates to my practice as a teacher. We live in a culture of punishment. When confessions are made in our culture, they don't lead people to sitting down to zazen, not very often at least. Rather, they very often lead to punishment. This seems reasonable to many of us. It's what we expect. And perhaps there is utility in certain kinds of punishment. I'm not going to sit here and tell you that i have so learned that I can necessarily rule out punishment as a tool, although I'm tempted to. But something is happening in our culture that is really interesting in relation to punishment. It is happening in our schools and it is happening in some other spaces as well. I'm sure many of you have heard of restorative justice. Again, I'm no expert in it. I haven't practiced it all that much. But my school is trying to practice restorative justice, even given our limited resources to do so. Here are some differences between a culture of punishment and a culture of restoration. And I think this does connect to our discussion of confession. I learned of this comparison in a workshop I recently attended on being a racially just teacher, anti-racist teaching. The differences between a punitive approach to things and a restorative approach can be captured by looking at the kinds of questions we ask for each. For a punitive approach, we ask, what rule or law was broken? For a restorative approach, we we ask first, who was harmed? For a punitive approach, we ask, or I'm sorry. (laughs) For a punitive approach, we ask, who broke the rule or law? For a restorative approach, we ask, what are the needs of all involved? For a punitive approach, we ask, what punishment does the person who caused the harm deserve? For a restorative approach, we ask how can we repair the harm and prevent it from happening again? And so often, the punishment we decide the, for the punitive approach is expulsion from the community, sometimes even in the form of death. But really, many of our forms of expulsion in relation to our carceral system are effective forms of death, and this is why we in education are taking so talking so much about the school to prison pipeline because research is showing us that when we begin forms of exclusion in school, they can often lead to punishments of exclusion later in life. Restorative justice is the opposite the offender so-called person who has perpetuated the harm is never excluded from the community, is never pushed from the circle. The goal is to keep the person in the circle while finding a means to repair the harm. Restorative justice is tough. It's not to say this is easy to do, but this is what the movement to abolish prisons and the death penalty are all about. To create a different kind of society where confession doesn't lead to punishment, where the severity of the punishment, in effect, is an obstacle to confession, but where confession is one crucial step along the road to justice, to reparation. Maybe with, I've gone too far. <laughs> I don't know. That this is exactly what Buddhism or our practice is after. Maybe restorative justice is a practice that you can put side to side with our practice. Again, I don't know. But personally, lately, I've been thinking on these connections. And as always, I'm very interested to know what you all think about any of this. Thank you very much for your attention.
0: Thank you, Bo. Douglas, can you call on people in the room or on Zoom who raise their hands? Yeah, Jerry, Jerry, can you help? And if anyone online wants to make a comment or ask a question, please just raise your hand or use your reaction button to uh, raise your icon.
2: Ken McNeil is yeah.
3: raising his hand. Ken, would you go ahead? Yes, I wanted to um, speak to the aspect of your of your uh, talk concerning white supremacy, and um, and basically the sentiment that I'd like to uh, offer is that um, I hope, I would hope that what uh, people who are white feel regarding white supremacy is not guilt, but remorse, um, and more so than that, empathy, and more so than anything else, identification. Let me explain what I mean. Um, now, this aspect of the teachings are speculative, as are all religious uh, doctrine concerning what happens after we die. But if the teachings are accurate, and we've lived countless lifetimes, Mm -hmm. chances are, at some point, my spirit was housed in the body of a white person. My spirit may even have been housed in the body of a slaveholder. Your spirit, though you're white now, could have been housed in the body of a slave. And so I would hope that White people white Buddhists, as we look at instances of white supremacy, more so than guilt, I would hope that our practice imbues in us a sense of identity, not just look at what my people are doing to them, but look at what is being done to us.
0: Sure. Uh,
1: thanks very much, Ken. Yeah. I I guess the first thing I'm thinking about is, you know, I think it's very important to be specific about history, and I agree that our practices, you know, we have these levels of the particular and the universal. So at the level of the universal, I recognize the co-identification of, like, everything, right? I think that's what I have took from our practice is in, insane, awesome interconnectedness to the point of emptiness to the point of there is no self, right? And then at the level of the particular, there have been very specific things that have happened to particular people in history. And I think it's important to be specific about that and to tell that story as accurately as possible. And to do so maybe as a means of in a hopeful way that sure whiteness is a construct right real material effects and maybe our practice is helpful in reminding us that it's possible someday to see that these like false racial categories are completely obliviated but for now they exist in very, with very harmful effects. That's my response and I I appreciate your comment. Thank you, Bo, and thank you, Ken, um, very much. I appreciate your uh, emphasizing identity and that we are all in this together and are all interconnected and that's real. And also there's this history um, (laughs) <laughs> and uh, we need to study history. We need to know what has happened uh, to all of us <laughs> through these dynamics. Um, I I think we're running a little late, but I, I'm interested in hearing other people uh, as uh, Bowen Kenor. Uh, and I wanted to actually, if I may, we have a Friday morning group that meets talking about anti-racism and how to be an anti-racist. I've been reading Abraham X. Kennedy. Dylan is leading that. I don't know, if Dylan, if you have any comments on uh, what Bo or Ken has said. Oh, gosh. Um, <laughs> um, I have a
4: comment
0: if you're yeah, go ahead. getting their your thoughts together, Dylan. Yeah. So, Bo, as you started out talking about tangles, You know, and Alan Snocky was thinking about this tangling, the untangling, you know. I have a little experience with that in a very simple way when I sew Buddha's robe. And anyone who's sewn, which quite a few of you bodhisattvas have, know that there's a tendency for the thread to knot up on itself. It's just one thread sewing together our practice. But the worst thing you can do with the thread is pull it. The best thing is to set it down and carefully, carefully study it and allow it to relax. And I felt that you were uh, helping us study, that you were engaged in this study of this tangled knot. So I just want to appreciate that very much. (laughs) That's all I have to say. Thank you.
4: Thank you. I guess the the what I would offer. And this is Dylan. Um, is is that um, it's important to take care of each other through uh, yeah. talking and uh, getting to know each other through 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 um, this this uh, this these forces that are. That work on us living in the United States, um, and that and that—that's I've found that that's been a really important work of that Friday morning group. How to hold each other tenderly as we're trying to we're trying to talk about things that are pretty vulnerable, and uh, people are afraid of talking about sometimes. Um, that uh, to create a space where people can try and figure out something that's very complicated and very painful often. Um, to to have a space where that's uh, protected uh, and um, is a uh, feels is a very deep practice. Um, and I feel like if there was more of that, opportunities for spaces like that in the United States, that there'd be less problems.
0: did you, you have
2: something you wanted to say yeah, um going back to uh what Ken said originally uh he 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 went from the the place of white supremacy and not looking at guilt as guilt it as guilt but rather uh, as remorse perhaps um and, and then identification and I was thinking uh on the more micro terms, micro level of looking at uh, the word confessions, which I just loved the repetition of the word confessions uh, and the fact that so often when we have an insight or a a breakthrough uh, in our patterns, our habitual patterns uh, that we look at it with um, guilt rather than looking at it as an opportunity for uh, um, growth, development, uh, so looking at it in, in, with the sadness of, oh, you know, that's where I was, and and that's who I am, and and what do I do? You know, how how does that sit with me? And what do I do to uh, make that a more comfortable place? Mm-hmm.
0: So we're we thinking maybe we might be time for us to take care of the business. <laughs> Given the lateness of the hour, I think we should chant the four bodhisattva vows, which we will chant three times, and then we can have announcements. Share the screen.
4: Beings are numberless. I
0: are vow to, to free freedom. Delusions, Delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to them. Our gates are boundless. I vow to enter them. Because for me unsurpassable. I vow to realize it. Beings are numberless. I vow to free them. Delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to win them. Dharma gates are boundless. I vow to enter them. Buddha's is I vow to realize it. Beings are numberless. I vow to free them. Delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless. I vow to enter them. But ways unsurpassable, I vow to realize them.